on your way in the sign, but uh, it said that the sermon we're preaching today is called The Elections Are Over, Now What? Okay? Um, just as a side note of another example that I've made as a church, a uh, mistake that I've made as a church planter, uh, there was some miscommunication from my end, and so all week the sign didn't have the word sermon in it. And so it just said, Seven Mile Road Church, the elections are over, now what? Sunday's at 10 a.m. And so every person who drove by this week, rather than thinking, here's a church that's pe preaching something that's relevant, that's important, has just thought, here's an angry, dumb church making some stupid political rant. You can tally that up to mistake 13,521 of my tenure here as a church planter. Um, it is by the grace of God alone that we still exist and still are standing. There's a story in the Old Testament of how God once spoke through a donkey. And so since the beginning, the, the idea that he's used a jackass once has been the only hope that I've had for church planting, okay? I want you to know that the Democrats in the room, they didn't hear a word I just said because in their minds, you know what they've been thinking? Did you hear that? God used a donkey, not an elephant, a donkey, right? If you didn't get that, that means you haven't been involved in politics at all this past week, right? Uh, some of us, I'd imagine, have come from different places when it comes to this whole election thing, right? Some of us have had election fever, right? How many of you were that guy? So you were watching every debate, you watched every poll, you conducted your own polls, you were monitoring all the political pundits and the talking heads, and, and on election night, this was me, you sat on your couch, with food and a beverage like it was Super Bowl Sunday. And you were not gonna get up until you found out exactly who won. And the second you knew, you blew up Facebook and Twitter with some perfectly worded, clever sentence about how smart you are and either for or against what had happened, right? Others of you, you're all the way on the other end of the spectrum, right? You're just glad the thing is done. Thank God the ads are over, no more campaigns, no more polls. No more talking heads, no more phone calls, no more get out the vote. At least it's over, right? And you can go on to happier things like watching the Eagles lose or whatever it is that we do for happiness. You're just glad the thing is done, right? And, and maybe somewhere you fall in between all of that. Maybe you voted, maybe you didn't vote. But here's what I want to say. Unless you buried your head in the sand this past week, there was just no way to avoid politics. It was everywhere. You could not avoid it. Right? And so part of what we want to ask is, how are we to think about all of this? Right? We want to sort of seize this moment. Everyone is just about starting to think about other things. So we want to seize this moment to just say, how should we think about all of this? Right? It, what we want to say is, the elections are over. Now what? What do we do? How, how do we relate to or view or consider what happened and the elections and government and all of it? So here's what I want to do today, very simply. What we're doing is we're pausing our series through 1 John, and we're considering this this week, and I just want to give you three things from the scriptures that I think God wants us to do now that the elections are over, right? With those three things, I want to give you three challenges with each, right? I want to give you three challenges about what we ought to do now that the elections are over, and in my head are sort of floating three passages of scripture. Uh, Romans 13 that Nate just read for us, 1 Peter 2 and 1 Timothy 2. If you're new to the Bible, if you go to the very first page, there's a list of all the books with the page number, and you can find Romans and 1 Peter and 1 Timothy. 
so what I want to do is I want to walk through quickly these three passages, jump between them as we talk through our sermon, and give you three challenges and three things that I think God wants us to do now that the elections are done. Okay? Let me pray, and then we'll consider the first of these together. Thank you, Lord, for this time together. Thank you for the freedom we enjoy to consider your word, to declare it publicly, to believe it openly. We thank you that we can gather around your word, and we pray that you would unite us around your son, Jesus Christ, today, and that we might see him exalted to the highest place, and we might bow our knee gladly and submit our hearts joyfully to his rule and reign over us all. Pray that this wisdom of the scriptures might be apparent to us all and that we might find in you and your word greater wisdom than what we think in ourselves. We will either consider ourselves to be all wise or bow the knee to you who are. So we pray that you'd bless us this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here's the first thing that we can do now that the elections are done. First, we can thank God for the gift of government. Now that the elections are done, first, we can thank God for the gift of government. Now, I know you thought you heard me wrong. You didn't. I just said we can thank God for the gift of government, right? I know when you think of the federal government in D.C. or when you even think of local government in City Hall, I'm sure you have choice words that come to mind. I doubt thanksgiving, gift from God, are among those words. I get it. I get that you are more likely to thank God for a root canal than you are for the government. So what do we mean when we say thank God for the gift of government? Here's what I want to say. I know that we think that government is this human enterprise, that we in our ingenuity or in our social construct, we came up with this idea because we saw it as a, a necessary thing for our society. But I want you to hear that the scriptures say that government is a deeply biblical idea. It's a deeply biblical construct. In fact, from the opening pages of the scriptures, I want you to see that it's there. The very first book of the Bible is this book called Genesis. The very first pages give us the origins of all things, including the origins of human beings. God creates these human beings, and he says that he makes them in his own image and likeness. Not that we were made gods, but we were made like God in his image and likeness. And what that means is that God made human beings to reflect his nature and who he is throughout the world. There's something about us that is supposed to tell the truth, that's supposed to reflect what God's like. And so when he made these human beings, he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. So to these first human beings were given this mandate that they were to subdue the earth. They were to rule over the earth. They were to reign over the earth. They were to govern over the earth. To the very first ones, he gave this mandate that they were to reflect that even as he had authority over all things, they were given authority over some things. So written into who they are, wired into their very nature, was this mandate to govern to rule, to reign, that even as God rules and reigns over everything, those who were made in his image and likeness were to rule and reign also. They were to govern. Government springs up from the very first pages. And God sort of wired this thing into every level of society because we're supposed to reflect the truth about his nature. Even as he has authority, you see authority in every level. So even at the smallest, most foundational level at home, what? Parents are given authority over their children. We're not peers. 
right? Even secular, if you're not religious, if you're not Christian, even secular parenting books will tell you that it's to the child's detriment if we parents do not accept our mantle of authority over them. We're not peers, we're given authority. And the idea is dad and mom are given authority to rule and reign and govern their home for the benefit of and the good of those who are subject to them, under their care. At the level of church, one level up, you see the same thing. God calls pastors, or the scriptures will all call them elders also. And he calls these pastors to rule and reign and govern over the church. And he grants to them authority that they might lead and rule and govern for the good of those who are under its care and subject to it. And as you see in the small home or in the bigger church, so even at the largest level of state and nation and country, you find that God has instituted government that they might also reflect his authority of rule and reign and govern over those who are under its care and subject to it for its good. You heard it said when Nate read it, but I want you to hear it again. It'll be on the screen as well. Romans 13. Hear again these verses. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is an authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, there's much we could say, but there's other passages I want to get to. I just want you to hear, do you see that the scriptures are clear that government is something that God instituted? And that its authority comes from God. And that it exists for our good. That's why God created the institution of government. To have his authority rule and reign over the earth. And it exists for our good. Right? In the verses it says, part of what government does is it punishes those who are wicked. Thank God we don't live in a society where all of us are up to vigilante justice and every man's got to fend for himself, but rather there are institutions in place to punish those who are wicked. But the, at the same time, the scriptures say the point of the government is not just for terror. Do you, want, do you want to not be afraid? Then do what's good because the other part of what government does is it blesses those who are good. The text goes so far even to suggest that the authorities and leaders who are in government, verse 4, are God's servants. Verse 6, are God's ministers. So I want you to hear this because you won't hear this on talk radio. Thank God for government. And if you work for the government, thank you for doing this good work. It is a good work that God has given to us for the good of those who are under its care. So we thank God for it. Because we see authorities and leaders as God's ministers and God's servants. If you're a Christian, it is a good thing for you to enter into government involvement at whatever level so that you might be a part of God's work in the world. Now, does that mean that government is Christian? By no means. I want you to hear that. But the scriptures teach us that government 
is biblical and good, even if it's not Christian. Now, if you're a Christian, you might not understand that, but I want you to hear that again. The scriptures teach us that governments are legitimate even if they don't know God and don't honor God. They're still legitimate God-instituted constructs that are for our good, even if they don't know God, even if they don't honor God. I'll give you an example. In Mark 12 and in Matthew 22, there's this story of some folks who came to Jesus. And the story is of this group called the Herodians and the Pharisees. Without getting into much detail, I just want you to know these two groups hated each other. This is Republicans and Democrats. They don't come together for anything. And if something is going to unite them, you have to imagine that it's something pretty significant. And these two groups that hated each other, the only thing they had in common was they hated Jesus. And so the Herodians and the Pharisees came together so that they could trap Jesus. The text tells us that these two adverse groups came together and they had this trap in mind. And what they were going to do is they were going to go to Jesus and they were going to say, Jesus, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Now that was a perfect trap. Maybe you hear that and you go, I, I, I don't see what's a trap in that. I, I want you to consider the circumstance so that you get it. The Jews were God's chosen people. I mean, Genesis onwards. In fact, they were the only nation on earth ever before or ever since that had God himself rule and reign over them. I mean, they were a people like no one else on the face of the earth. No one else had God directly over them. So they were a theocracy, not just a government. God was literally their king. God's laws was literally their laws. God's government was literally their government. There's never been anything before or anything since like Israel. So God's chosen people who have God as their king are now living a time in the era of Jesus where Rome is ruling over them. And it's not just that God's not their only king now. It's Rome. Rome is pagan. Rome has idols. Rome is a God-hating, idol-worshipping, pagan government. And so, add insult to injury, these pagans are now ruling over God's people. And so every day the Jews would pray for liberation and for salvation. And what they were waiting for all their lives is for God to overthrow the pagan, idolatrous, wicked government of the Romans. And every day they longed for that. And what was even worse is, not only did they have this idolatrous pagan government, wicked, ruling over them, but they were forced to pay taxes to them. I mean, now, not only did they have to have these people in their land, they had to foot the bill for the soldiers that were occupying their land. So faithful Jews not only hated the tax. I mean, you think you hate taxes. They hated taxes. There was revolts about taxes. But not only did they have to hate the tax, there were faithful Jews who felt like even paying that tax was was furthering the occupation of a wicked and pagan government over God's people. You see the tension? And now the perfect trap comes because when they ask, should we pay taxes to Caesar? If he says, yes, pay the tax, then every Jew hates him. And his popularity is gone in a moment and every person is going to see him as a turncoat and turn on him. If he says, no, don't pay the tax, now he's an enemy of the state who is encouraging the people to rebel against Rome, and Rome will get him. And so the Democrats and the Republicans come together because they've got the perfect trap. 
If he says yes, pay the tax, then the people will get him. If he says no, don't pay the tax, Rome will get him. Either way, he's dead. It's perfect. It's brilliant. So they come to Jesus and they ask the question. And if you know the story, Jesus says, bring me a coin for the tax. And so someone brings up a denarius. That's what it's called. And he says, whose image is on the coin? And the coin was this denarius, and on it was this print of Caesar. It was a coin in the image and likeness of Caesar. And on the coin, it even went so far as to declare that Caesar was God, the Son of God. So here's the Son of God now having to stare at a coin with Caesar's face, and that it says Son of God on it. And then Jesus gives the most brilliant answer. He says, whose image is on the coin? They say Caesar's. And he says, and Christian or not, you've probably heard this phrase. He says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and render unto God what is God's. I mean, that answer was so brilliant that the text even says they marveled. I mean, they had a trap that was perfect. Yes, he's done. No, he's done. He's done. And the text even says they walked away marveling. And what Jesus basically says is, whose image and likeness is that coin in? It's Caesar's? Then give him the coin. But you, you, whose image and likeness are you imprinted with? Give to God what is God's. Jesus says to his subjects, I have no problem with you giving coins that are in Caesar's image and likeness to Caesar. But you who have been imprinted with the image and likeness of God, render unto God what is God's. You can give a coin, but you, your heart, your soul, you belong to God and render unto God what belongs to God. Now, what's amazing about this is not just that he evaded their trap. He does two incredible things. I mean, sermons have been written on this. Books, whole books, political philosophy books have been written on this. But I just want you to hear two things that he does. One, when he says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, do you know what he does? He legitimizes a pagan, idolatrous, wicked government as a legitimate government. He was telling his people, God's people, that they could use the idolatrous coin and pay their taxes. Because even this government that didn't worship God or know God or love God was still a legitimate government that God's people could be submissive to. Because they could render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, right? And so what Jesus does in that is he basically, as one pastor said, he unhitches Christians from any one nationality or any one government from thinking that there's only one government now that belongs to God. He, he unhitches us. You see, the days when God ruled over one people as his chosen people, that day is done. Israel's done. Theocracy is done. And so what God does is he unhitches Christians from saying, we can be submissive good citizens in any government, in any nation, because we can render unto Caesar what is Caesar's with no problem, because we render unto God what is God's. Our primary, our primary allegiance and loyalty is to God, and we have that loyalty and allegiance no matter where we are. And so we can be good citizens whether we're in America or Canada, maybe not Canada, uh, Mexico, you know, Japan, Pakistan, wherever it is, right? One pastor said, by God's grace, Christians are like cockroaches. We can survive anything. And it's true. Because we can render unto Caesar what is Caesar's wherever we are. 
and recognized these authorities as God's instituted authority over us for our good, but we render unto God my heart, my soul, my body, my being, because we have been made in the image and likeness of God. See, what Jesus does here is he shows us, look, any government can be instituted by God, and we ought to give God thanks for it. So if the people of God could submit to the idolatrous, pagan, wicked Roman government, then wherever you are, Christian, you can submit also. And you can thank God for the gift of government, certainly even our imperfect government living as Americans in our country. It's by God's grace that he spares us from the unbridled self-interest of anarchy where you and I would rule unto ourselves. It's in his grace that he has given us the gift of an institution like government. So here's my first challenge for you. If you're a Christian and you have found yourself either completely unengaged or on the other end cynical, hateful of government and authority, would you consider it as a good gift from a good God and that at its core, what it exists for is our good to reflect the authority of God over us. So election day is done. The first thing we can do is we can give God thanks for the gift of government. Here's the second one, and perhaps even more important. I want you to hear this. Now that the elections are done, second, we can support our president and our elected officials. I want to say that again. Now that the elections are over, we must support our president and our newly elected officials. This is important, and I don't want you to miss this. Whether you voted for Barack Obama or not, and particularly if you did not, I want you to hear this. God put Barack Obama in his office particularly if you're in camp two that did not vote for him. I want you to hear it again. God appointed him to his office. I want, to hear, I want you to hear some scriptures before I say more on it. Daniel 2, verse 21. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Daniel 4, verse 7. The Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes, and sets over it the lowliest of men. I could quote you other verses from the Psalms and all over the scriptures that talk about how God appoints leaders and deposes them. God's the one who puts them in place and takes them out. And all of this is done by God's sovereign will. It's sort of like that scene where Jesus is standing in front of Pilate, Jesus is on trial for his life. He's about to be murdered and executed. They've beaten him. They've broken him. They've bloodied him up. And now he's standing before this official named Pilate. And he's not making any self-defense. Jesus had come to die for the sins of the world. No one was taking his life. He had gladly laid it down for us. And so Pilate is standing there, and he can't understand why the man won't make a defense for himself. How can you not defend yourself? And Pilate goes so far as to say, don't you realize that I have power over you, power to crucify you or to set you free? If you've read that portion, do you remember what Jesus says in response? He says, you would have no power over me at all 
if it had not been given to you from above. Pilate, I know that you think that you're over me right now. I'm telling you, you would have no authority over me at all if God had not put you in this place for this moment for this very purpose. Right? Pilate, I know you think you rose through the ranks. I know you think you won the popular polls or had a better campaign or got handpicked and appointed by the emperor himself. But I'm telling you, Pilate, you are where you are because it has been given you from above. So likewise for us, I read a sentence that was a good sentence and I want you to hear it. In our election, the American public voted as it did because God, in the mystery of his providence, had already cast the deciding vote. I want you to hear that again. The American public voted as it did because God, in the mystery of his providence, had already cast the deciding vote. That means all of us and all our ballots in every state, as they came in state by state, was simply carrying out the will that God had already determined in advance. Now, how does our will and God's will work? You'll have to come back another Sunday for another sermon for that one, right? But in the mystery of his providence, the scriptures say, God has appointed every ruler in his place. And so, as Christians, as an expression of our submission to the will of God, we are called by the scriptures to submit to those whom God places in authority over us. Hear it again, just in case you miss it. Romans 13, verse 1, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, And those that exist have been instituted by God. Well, Paul's friend Peter says this in his letter. 1 Peter 2, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. Verse 17. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Now, if you didn't vote for Barack Obama, I can almost imagine what you're tempted to say in your mind, which is surely Paul and Peter were writing in a different day with better governments. If it was in our day, they wouldn't have written this. And if we had good leaders, we would gladly submit because they wouldn't have said it now. I want you to hear this. Do you know who was in power when these men wrote these words? Do you know who was in power when they called on Christians to submit to the authorities And to honor the emperor? The leader of that day was a man named Nero. If you've heard of Nero, Nero was this man, one commentator said, who invented this sport. You know how we watch prize fights? He invented a coliseum sport where everyone showed up to watch Christians being fed to lions. Nero was a man who had Christians drawn and quartered. That means you tied a horse to one part of each of your limbs. And then you whipped the horses, and the horses went in four directions so that the Christian's body was torn into forts. Nero was a man who lit his gardens with Christian torches. What's a Christian torch? A Christian that was torched. He would take Christians, tie them up, dip them in oil or pitch or resin, and then put them on poles and light them ablaze, and all his dinner parties had Christians lighting up his gardens. That's who was in power when Paul and Peter would say, submit to the authorities, honor the emperor, or as he'll say in 1 Timothy 2, we'll see it in a moment, 
pray for those who are in power. So if Christians were called to submit to the empire that had killed their Christ, we can submit to any empire. And we can support those whom God has put in authority over us. Now, I want you to hear this. Will there ever be times where Christians disobey the government or do not follow the authority of the government? Yes, there will be. When the authority of God clashes with the authority of man, God wins. Because we render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and we render unto God what is God's. Even in the scriptures you find that. When the government tells you to do what God has told you not to do, or when the government tells you to not do what God has told you to do, we disobey. Exodus 2, there was a government order to kill babies, and two midwives refused to obey, and they were blessed for it. In Daniel, there was a government order that no one should pray, and Daniel three times a day would go by his window wide open for all to see and pray. And he was fed to the lions for it. In Acts, there was a government order that no one should preach about Jesus. It was illegal to share the gospel. And the apostles said, you tell me, should we obey God or should we obey you? And they went and gladly broke the law and were beaten for it. So when the authority of God clashes with the authority of man, we gladly submit to our higher authority because we render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and we render unto God what is God's. But I want you to hear this. That requires great discernment on our part, but by and large, we are called by God to express our submission to God by submitting to the authorities and leaders that he has placed over us. If you are asking, perhaps, if you're a Christian here and whose heart is ready to obey God's word, maybe you're saying, how do I obey this? That would be a great question that I hope your heart is asking. Well, Romans tells us one of the ways is just to be good citizens. I won't read it now, but in Romans 13, it says pay your taxes so Christians don't cheat and lie on your taxes because this is worship to the Lord. Don't look for that extra way because you are submitting unto God as you are faithful even in your taxes. Give revenue to whom revenue is due. Give honor to whom honor is due. It says honor the emperor. And so even when we disagree, we should do so with honor. Don't let your words and your lips be as careless as the world around you because your submission is unto God. And so as a sign of submitting to the Lord, when you speak of your leaders, speak even still of honor. Even when you disagree with them, do so with honor. And let me give you one specific practical way that you can support our newly elected president. If you're a Christian, this is something unique to you. Let me read you 1 Timothy 2. Here's what it says. Paul is writing, and again, remember who's in power when he tells Christians to do this. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all peoples, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So one practical way that you can support our newly elected president or re-elected president is to pray for him. First of all, then, I urge that all kinds of prayers be made for all kinds of people, particularly for kings and those in high places. If you're a Christian, I want to ask you, how are we doing with that? This week, as I was preparing and studying for this, I was deeply convicted 
and repented of my lack of prayer for our president. Lack of prayer, that I have not considered it first of all important to pray for those who are in authority over us. And I want you to hear this. Christian, if your lips are far more filled with complaints than they are with prayers, you're certainly out of balance from the scriptures. The scriptures call us to have lips that are filled with prayers for those who are in authority over us. So here's my second challenge. If you're hearing a Christian, whether you voted for Barack Obama or not, and again, hear me, particularly if you did not vote for him, I want to speak to you for a second. The challenge of the scriptures is, would you gladly submit to our president as an expression of your submission to God? In fact, in a moment after this sermon is done, I want us to pray for a minute or two and obey 1 Timothy 2. First of all, pray for all people, all citizens, this country. We should pray, and especially those who are leaders and officials. And, and nobody knows who you voted for, but you do. And so if you didn't, in fact, as an act of your submission to God, would you pray with a heart that is sincere for our president? Would you pray blessing upon him and health for him and safety for him, a good family for him, wisdom for him? Would you pray, hear me, would you pray that God would make him one of the best presidents our nation has ever known? Would you pray that God would give him the kind of wisdom he needs to help unite a nation that we clearly know is deeply divided? Would you pray that God would give him courage and boldness to do what's right and change his mind on things that he is wrong? Would you pray for God's light and correction to fill him in the places where he errs and courage to strengthen him in the places where he's right? Listen to me. There are things with which I deeply disagree with our president because of my commitments to scripture. And yet, my hope is that President Obama would find among the Christians of this land some of the best citizens and most prayerful supporters of his presidency. Do you hear me? We can deeply disagree where the scriptures call us to. And yet, is our expression of submission to God, we can wholeheartedly pray for his great blessing and the benefit of his good rule and reign that we might lead quiet and dignified lives. So election day is over. The second thing we can do is we can submit to our newly elected president and our newly elected officials. Last one and then I'm done. Now that election day is over, third and finally, we should hope in God and do the work of his gospel. Third and lastly, now that the elections are over, we should hope in God and do the work of his gospel. I want you to hear this. The gospel is better than government. The gospel is greater than government. And the work of the gospel is better than the work of government. In 1 Timothy 2, you don't have to turn there now, but Paul says, I, pray, I want you to pray for kings and leaders and all these things. And then he goes on to say in verse 3, For this is pleasing in the sight of God, who desires for all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of him. You see, Paul can't even talk about the government for two seconds without knowing the purpose of all of this is for the advance of the gospel. I want good government and good leaders in place so the gospel can go forth and all men might be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth of him. 
Paul's primary concern, the scripture's primary concern, a Christian's primary concern is to hope in God and do the work of his gospel because the gospel is better than government. One pastor rightly said, look, the gospel can do what government can't do. Government can make laws. The gospel can change a heart, right? Government can ban racism, but only the gospel can produce love, right? Government can outlaw corruption, but only the gospel can engender generosity and eliminate greed. The gospel, the government can tax the wealthy and provide relief for the poor. But only the gospel can make us a compassionate, merciful people. Government has never made people good. The gospel does. And so government can produce a good nation. Only the gospel can produce godly people. And that's why we hope in God and do the work of the gospel. Because the work of the gospel is greater than government. The New Testament unashamedly says... In Philippians, listen, Christians, our citizenship is in heaven. So listen to me, American or somewhere else, Republican or Democrat, your primary identity and allegiance and loyalty is to a better kingdom with a better citizenship and a better king. Jesus is king of kings and Lord over all lords. And our hope is not in the one who sits in the Oval Office, our hope is in one who sits on the throne. And he's not standing for re-election. And he doesn't need popular polls. And he doesn't need pundits to tell him what to do. He rules and reigns over all. And we were not natural-born citizens of that kingdom. We were aliens who were made citizens through Jesus Christ. The king had come down to this earth to take us who was aliens and died for us so that we might become citizens of his kingdom, sons and daughters of the great king. So that's what I want you to hear. Whether you come to Seven Mile Road and you're Democratic or Republican or Independent or whatever you are, I want you to hear this. Every four years, we get to say who we think should be president. Every seven days, we come together to say together, Jesus is Lord. And he's Lord of lords and king of kings. And that unites us, whatever else may separate us. Because he is the one, Isaiah says, on whom the government rests on his shoulders. And his kingdom never ends. And when Revelations looks up in the heavens, it says, there's a throne and there's someone seated on it. It's not empty or vacated waiting for it to be filled. There is a king seated firmly on his throne. So I want you to hear this. You can know if your heart right now is placing your hope in him or in lesser things. If on election night, as the results came in, you found yourself devastated or elated because your hope was in the one who was going to fill the Oval Office, I want you to hear we've gotten sidetracked and we need to repent and come back to say our hope is in God and our primary work is the work of the gospel. The mandate Jesus gave to Christians is not to fill political offices. It's to make disciples. So what's your mandate, Christian? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey the commands of the King, and he's with us always to the end of the age. That's our work. And if we've been sidetracked, church, 
in putting our hope in lesser authorities, devastated or elated, crushed or exalted because all our hope was in this, then the gospel calls us back to hope again in God and do the work of his gospel. The mandate of the church, the mandate of the church is to make disciples. How are we going to impact our nation? It's certainly not just in the leaders we put in office. The church has a charge that government doesn't. It's to make disciples. Government can't do that. Only the church of Jesus Christ can. And that is a better and greater work than any work of the government. So, now that election day is over, I want to ask you to thank God for the gift of government. Because in his grace to us, he has put this institution over us for our good. When it strays from the authority of God, we submit first to God. Second, to support our leaders as an expression of our support and submission unto God. And third, to get busy doing the work of the gospel, to not be sidetracked by lesser agendas and lesser things, but to come back to what is central and most important and to hope in God who sits on the throne. So then, rightly, we can render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and render unto God what is God's. Amen. Let's pray together. What I want to do is I want to invite you to pray. All right, so hear me. You don't have to pray long. You don't have to pray eloquently. Jesus impressed God for us, so we don't have to impress God or one another. But pray. Pray in obedience to 1 Timothy 2, asking God for the good of all people, particularly for those who are in high offices, and express your submission to God through prayer. I'm going to give us just a few moments. I'd encourage one or two of us to pray, or as many of us want to pray, to pray, and then I'll close for us. Let's approach God together.